Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history this week on the agenda, and for that matter, next week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about something that all of us use every single day. The humble timekeeper, the clock. We take measuring time for granted today. We have ridiculously accurate clocks available to us at all times, and we think nothing of knowing exactly what time it is whenever we want to know it. But we don't have to go that far back in history to reach a point where a clock that would end up an hour off by the end of the day was considered pretty bloody impressively accurate. And if we go back a little further, clocks weren't even clocks as we imagine them. You know, they didn't have faces or hands or dials, nothing like that. And it's funny because these days we really do take knowing what time it is for granted. But the vast majority of human history has operated without a concept of what a minute is, let alone a second. You know, if you went back, a, a, you know, a couple of hundred years and asked someone to wait five minutes, there's a good chance, you know, you, you go back five centuries, they, they're not, they don't know what you're talking about. They know, they've got no, and if they do, they've got no way to measure it accurately, right? It was fascinating, absolutely fascinating to find out how a relationship with time has changed over the years and, and what the question, what time is it, has meant, the way that, that you can answer that question, you know, throughout thousands of years of human history, right? The way, and, and especially, especially, the role that technology has had in influencing that relationship and the answer to that question. So, it, it, it is a long one. It's a long one. The history of clocks. We've split it. I've split it over uh, over two weeks here. So today we're going to go uh, right back to ancient times. We're going to talk about how uh, we first started measuring time with uh, things like sundials and water clocks. We'll get across uh, mechanical clocks and. Uh, springs and pendulums and, and pocket watches and uh, you know grandfather clocks, that sort of thing. And uh, then next week, we will build up through marine chronometers, time zone, wrist, time zones, wrist watches, electric clocks, quartz clocks, all the way through to atomic clocks, the ones that we uh, broadly use today, quartz and atomic clocks. And um, we'll talk about the various devices that we've used to measure time, get across important breakthroughs and the people behind them. And I'll you know, eventually have to make a brave attempt at explaining things like crystal oscillators and magnetic re- resonance. So good luck to me, I suppose. Don't get your hopes up. It is bloody complicated. Hey, anyway, we've got a, a lot to get across here. So let's get to it. We're going to start our journey of several millennia to understand why today it is as simple as looking in one of the corners of your little glowing rectangles to know exactly what time it is. We're going all the way back to, uh, well, who bloody knows when actually, to be honest, around 4,000 years ago is the best estimate, around 2000 BCE. 
when uh, ancient civilizations across the world had various devices that they used to measure the passage of time. Um, but without having left a written history behind them, it's very difficult to know exactly what they were up to. You've all heard of Stonehenge, of course, and there were plenty of other, you know, other stone circles built throughout prehistoric Europe. Um, it's thought that they might have been rudimentary timepieces used to measure and predict things like, you know, an equinox or a solstice. Not very specific that you know but you got to start somewhere i mean you know but back then i guess it was yeah i'll just i'll just meet you down there at, uh, at half past you go half past what you go well half past the equinox i don't know <laughs> i don't know mate um but the first rec- recorded uh, instances of sexagesimal timekeeping that is a system using the number 60 as its base they come from ancient ancient mesopotamia and egypt and i think these are really the first clocks before if you go back before that not so much clocks as they are calendars really um, so these these ancient uh, sexagesimal or is it sexagesimal? I actually didn't know. I didn't. I should have looked that one up. Sex is something of all timekeeping here. Everyone's bloody giggling away like you shouldn't be. Um, uh, these were the you know the first real uh, instances of, of of what you could call a, a rudimentary clock. Again, from from Mesopotamia and Egypt. Although on the other side of the Atlantic, in, you know, in fairness, in, in ancient Mesoamerica, um, civilizations adapted adapted their vigesimal vigesimal. I don't know their base twenty system to measure time as well. But again, we're talking about days and months and not hours. And so to get get, get to that level of, of granularity, we have to skip forward a fair way here. The oldest way of measuring time, of course, won't surprise you to learn, is, of course, by observing the sun's position in the sky. And uh, the natural extension of that, of course, you know if the sun's right above you, you know it's midday. Um, but but the extension of that is course of course is to rather than looking at the sun like a bit of a deal you look at the shadows on the ground you look at the shadows that the sunlight casts now while we're not one hundred percent sure it's reasonably safe to assume that you know ancient humans used shadow clocks to uh, to measure the passage of time uh, through the day but very little hard evidence of this actually has survived the oldest surviving shadow clock we have. Dates, uh, dates back to ancient Egypt uh, from around 1500 BCE, and uh, you'd recognise it as what we call uh, today a sundial. Everyone's familiar with a sundial, of course, a flat dial with a small stick or gnomon, to give it its proper name, uh, that casts a shadow on the dial, and the dial has markings on it, and the shadow you know, moves around with the sun. It points to the various markings you know what time it is. The ancient Egyptians, they divided the day into 12 parts with their sundials. Some divided even further, although you know, not, not all the way quite to the minute, of course. Um, and this was at the very bleeding edge of technology development when it came to timekeeping. They also used obelisks to measure time by putting markings on the ground around the obelisks and, 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 and turning them into enormous sundials as well. Um, and a lot of these ancient sundials, the smaller ones anyway, uh, they didn't measure the whole day, but just half of it. At noon, you'd actually have to rotate your sundial uh, 180 degrees uh, to have it measure the rest of the day that you know to make sure the shadow was actually going to fall on it rather than um, you know the, the ones that you might expect today that are a little more circular or, or at least uh, hemispherical that you can uh, you can you know leave in one one fixed spot for the whole day but today of course sundials are they're quaint and they're usually you know just largely ornamental objects given that they don't most <laughs> that really boast much in the way of, of accuracy for for several reasons firstly as you know the the length of a day right? It varies throughout the year. There are bigger variations taking place the further you are from the equator. And a sundial, but but a sundial doesn't account for these variations, right? It still only breaks up the day into those 12, quote-unquote, hours, meaning that an hour in winter is much shorter than an hour in summer, as one-twelfth of a day isn't a static measurement. So you can see that, you know, these aren't particularly precise or accurate ways of measuring time, just just dividing up a, 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 a variable measure of time there. And secondly... 
this was I enjoyed this one a lot. This you know the the innocent helpfulness just absolutely got me here because uh, one Wikipedia editor reminds us that a sundial is not so useful in cloudy weather or at night. So <laughs> so <laughs> so. The sundial, the sundial has more than one uh, drawback. Of course, not only it's, it's the fact that it doesn't measure time in a static sense, but also uh, you know is not so useful in cloudy weather. So clearly, there's room for improvement. Sundials they're imprecise, their measurements vary, they're non they're non constant, and again, you bug it if it's a cloudy day. Uh, you'll be late to your hairdresser appointment. Can't have that. So another timekeeping uh, method that uh, developed uh, basically at a similar point in history, right? Maybe may even been earlier, although evidence is lacking for that, was the water clock. Water clocks are very popular, very popular way to measure time uh, used in ancient Egypt, Babylon, Persia, India, China, perhaps many other places as well. The oldest, oldest surviving water clock we have uh, dates back to ancient Egypt, just like the sundial, to around 1400 BCE, so 100 years uh, 100 years uh, later than the, the oldest surviving sundial. That's not to say that it's an older technology, and we're not, we're not 100% sure of these sorts of things. It is very likely that you've been used long before this one. But what is a water clock, I hear you ask? Well, even if you're not familiar with exactly how they measure time, the principle behind them will not be new to you, as I'll explain in a second. There were two types of water clock, right? There are inflowing and outflowing water clocks, and they remain the most dominant and popular ways of measuring time for centuries, centuries and centuries thereafter. An inflow water clock involves a larger vessel, you know, more or less a bucket, like a bucket, and a smaller vessel, like a bowl, and you fill the bucket with water and then place the bowl, which has a very small, tiny hole in its bottom and markings along its inside. You place the bowl into the bucket and water slowly flows through the tiny hole into the bowl and by using the markings on the inside of the bowl you can actually see how much time has passed. So that's an inflow water water clock because the, the water is flowing into the bowl. But there's also an outflow water clock, on the other hand, um, which which involves water sort of, you know, pissing out of a bowl with a tiny hole into another bowl position below it. And this essentially is, as I'm sure you've already figured out, basically exactly the same principle behind an hourglass, a bottleneck on the flow of a substance, whether it's sand or water, which uh, ensures that it's moving at a steady rate, a steady, measurable and consistent rate. Now, water clocks offered advantages over the sundial. They could be used inside, they could be used at night or on a cloudy day, and they could measure intervals of time much better than a sundial could because you knew, right, that if you used a water clock, you'd more or less get the same measurement every single time. Whereas if you use a sundial, it's going to give you a different measurement in December than the ones it's going to give you in June, regardless of where you are in the world, unless you know, you're bang on the equator, you're not going to get the same measurement on it based on the time of year. So water clocks were a little more precise in that regard. However, they came with their own drawbacks. They weren't as accurate as sundials in some area because they were affected by the temperature. Cold water flows much slower than warm water and, of course, can just freeze. Uh, and on top of that, they required attention and manual resetting for them to continue to function. If you want it to continue working and measure time over any long distance, you need someone actually watching it and, and, and resetting it. Where, you, know, you can just leave a sundial hanging on the wall and it's going to be fine. So... You know, this is these are some of the pros and cons of these different ancient timekeeping methods, but the the water clocks did win out. These, uh, you know, this method for measuring time it was widespread throughout the ancient world. The technology, you know, it spread as far far and wide throughout the throughout the world at the time, and um, you know, it developed independently in some regions as well. The ancient world didn't have the same concept of punctuality. I guess it's important to point out that we do today. You know, you didn't have to be at work at nine o'clock on the dot. There was no such thing as nine o'clock. Um, so there were there were few reasons to monitor time so precise precisely as we do today. Sundials and water clocks, therefore, they were sufficient for people's needs for many many centuries. 
But it was uh, water clocks that were developed further ultimately in the in the in, in classical antiquity in the Greco-Roman world. Right, they were developed to make them uh, to make them more useful and more accurate. Uh, when in the fourth fourth uh, century BCE. Uh, Greek water clocks were improved uh, to take into account variations in water pressure, right? They, we, they used conical uh, containers rather than round ones to, to account for that. Um, and they had hours that were marked by gongs or bells when enough water had moved through the clock. And in, in some cases, even had dials and hands that moved as the water did, which is, which is really so fascinating to learn that sort of stuff is, you know, thousands of years old. Uh, water clocks also had an impact on culture. Well, today we might, uh, you know, tell someone to hurry up or remind them that uh, that the clock's ticking. Well, by by saying the clock's ticking, by saying you know tick tock, tick tock, whatever else they like that. Uh, back in these days, they used very different turns of phrase. Plato, in one of his uh, his writings, made reference to time pressure by saying the flowing water urges them on, which is uh, you know basically the the ancient Greek way of saying tick tock, tick tock, because of course clocks didn't tick at that time; they they flowed. But as we move into the common era here, and the, na- the, the next great big uh, development in time te- uh, timekeeping technology approaches, there are a few other clock types to get across. Like the hourglass, they're all based on the same principle as the water clock, uh, the movement or the consumption of a material at a steady rate. In parts of Asia, specifically China and Japan, burning incense became a way to measure time. Incense sticks could be marked to measure the rate of burning. Uh, some particularly elaborate incense clocks had uh, weights and gongs, so when they, when enough incense had burned, they'd make a noise. This is, you know, a common theme, uh, uh, noises marking the passage of time. Um, but it wasn't just noises. Others used different types of incense depending on the t- time of day. So rather than actually hear the time changing with uh, gongs or bells going off, you could actually use your use your schnoz, right, and recognise the type of incense that was being burned at different time of the day. And so you'd be able to smell the time, which I thought was very, very cool. And there are plenty of other things that burn at a steady rate, of course. Oil lamps. Uh, oil lamp clocks used a, a clear flask of oil that slowly flowed out and was burnt at, at a steady rate. Uh, markings along the side of the flask to show how much time had passed. You could put hourly little markings on there like that. And similarly, the candle clock was another reasonably popular me- method of telling uh, telling the time. Uh, both the oil lamp clock and the candle clock were, you know, particularly useful at night because, of course, they gave off light and you could still see what time it was uh, in-, in the dark. And candle clocks, they were made with markings either directly on them or they were set into sp- uh, specially designed holders with vertical markers along the side of them there. Um, uh, but you could, you could also use a candle clock. This is very cool. You could use a candle clock as a timer with an alarm, right? What you do, you get a candle clock, you stick a nail through the candle at the desired time, right? So if you know it's going to take two hours to burn down to a certain point, you stick the nail through that time, right? Through, th- Sorry, through that point in the candle, right? And after two hours, the wax around the nail will have melted and the, and the nail will clatter down onto, you know, you put a metal plate beneath it and it'll clatter down onto that and make a bunch of noise. Now, it's obviously not quite the eh, 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 eh of an alarm clock these days, but still pretty bloody clever. Still pretty bloody clever, I'd say. You know, a, a, a very, a very, uh, a very clever use of the of the technology that uh, you know was available at the time there. But a disadvantage, of course, of these fire based clocks uh, is that unlike you know a sundial or a uh, a water clock, they used up a resource permanently as it burnt up. And uh, perhaps this had something to do with the long standing popularity of the water clock instead, and and in later years the hourglass. Um, hourglasses in particular, they picked up in popularity uh, throughout the medieval period as, as glass-blowing techniques improved and, and made them cheaper and more widely available. And they were particularly useful on ships where uh, the pitch and roll of the ocean prevented sundials or water clocks from being, you know, 
even slightly accurate as the uh, as the water would be tossed around or the shadow would move around all over the place. So so hourglasses were one of the one of the early one of the rudimentary uh, methods of uh, of naval timekeeping. We'll come back to that uh, in a little bit. Very fascinating story coming up on a bit a bit of naval history coming your way, my, my friends, later on. However. All of these clocks, the water clocks, the candle clocks, the sundials, all the rest of these here, right? these were all to become obsolete with the next breakthrough in timekeeping technology, escapements and gearing. Now, you're familiar with gears and a gear train, of course, round things with cogs that interlock and, you know, interlock with other gears and they transmit torque and you can get gear ratios to move. You know, it's it, you understand it. This, is, this isn't half-ass engineering, but uh, you, you, get how, you, you get how gears work. An escapement is a little more complicated. I'm going to have a go at explaining it here, but it actually it, it works better visually when you actually see how an escapement works. So if, if you're near a device that can show you this, just, just Google escapement and, you, and you'll get a good sense of how they work. It is essentially a way to have a gear move at a certain rate, right? So it's something that controls the speed of, of, of a gear as it turns. Uh, it's a mechanical device that pushes it pushes a gear forward uh, at predetermined intervals, right? And that interval is, of course, usually a second, right? So it would push this gear forward once a second, and it is the escapement in a mechanical clock that makes the ticking sound. Modern clocks don't need to tick. I'm sure you know you've seen watches and clocks that don't tick at all these days. The only reason that tick is put into modern clocks today, which are powered by something completely different, as we'll come to, is because of the 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 holdover, I guess, you know, the the expectation we have for clocks to tick, because they used to do that hundreds of years ago when they when they were, were powered by uh, by escapements. So the escape, I say powered by escapements. They weren't powered by escapements. They were, they, were, they were regulated by escapements. The escapement itself actually required a source of power in order to work properly, right? It needed something to, to operate and make the gear turn. And immediately, of course, you're going to think of springs and pendulums and that sort of thing. But no, no, no. They came along so many hundreds of years later. We're getting so far ahead of ourselves with that. We're going to go back to escapements when they were first used because they were first used with water clocks, the first person to use escapements, or to suggest the use of escapements, was a Greek engineer named Philo of Byzantium. And the idea took hold there, uh, both there in, in Greece and in China. The technology was used in conjunction with existing water, to- water clock technology uh, to give them a new, a new degree of accuracy. The, the water flowing, um, rather than it being measured itself, it would power the escapement, which would then very rigor well, I say very rigorously, for the time, very rigorously, the passage of time and, and divide it up into again into seconds which is uh, which is something that you know a, a, a degree of granularity that clocks at, at, at this stage just w- w- had no idea would w- wouldn't wouldn't have even come close to right so escapements they were used by uh, by inventors such as su song uh, an 11th century chinese inventor who built an enormous an enormous elaborate clock called the cosmic engine it had gongs and bells and little moving mannequins it even had an armillary sphere to show the positions of the stars it was what's known as an astron- uh, astronomical clock as well and it was in the 11th century that the very first geared clock was invented and built by a bloke whose name was Ibn Khalaf al-Muradi. He lived in Islamic Iberia, modern-day Spain and Portugal. And it was a water-powered clock that used uh, these sophisticated gear trains in order to ensure maximum accuracy and, uh, and probably very greatly influenced the next development in timekeeping technology, 
the fully mechanical clock, ones that didn't rely on water power. Water powered clocks had still, you know, they still had their drawbacks despite their inc- increased complexity and accuracy with uh, with escapements and gearing. They they were huge, obviously. They weren't portable. They required a lot of oversight and they were heavily affected by temperature. The fact that water flows at different speeds based on temperature or just freezes altogether means that clock meant that these clocks they could never be perfectly accurate. Um, and some inventors, actually, in order to counteract this, they went as far as using mercury to power these uh, these liquid clocks uh, to avoid this problem. <laughs> Probably much to the detriment of their uh, of their personal health and well being, but uh, that is what they did. But water clocks, as I say, they inched towards obsolescence as clockmakers began to experiment with alternative forms of power. Uh, rather than water uh, throughout the throughout the 12th and 13th centuries water clocks are still widespread of course there's a story from uh, there's a story from 1198 in England when uh, when there was a fire right monks ran to the clock to put it out because there was so much water in the I, I like that rather than you having a fire brigade or anything you ran to the clock tower to get enough water to put out a fire which I, I, I thought that was pretty funny but um, as people experimented with new ways to power clocks uh, new timepieces relied instead on uh, an escapement that was instead of being powered by the movement of water, was powered by a system of weights. Right, you'd have a weight that would be wound up on a cord uh, around. Uh, you know, you'd wind up the cord on the weight, and the the cord would then slowly unravel as the weight you know pulled down towards the ground. And this uh, this movement uh, would then be regulated by what was called a balance wheel. Uh, you'd have to wind up the weight back to its you know back up its round uh, wound cord, of course. But that was simple and simpler and more straightforward than uh, than transferring water around. These were the first truly mechanical clocks. They didn't rely on the power provided by flowing liquid, you know, this continuous power. Instead, they used oscillatory power, uh, the power provided by a balance wheel, which is a device that rotates back and forth at a steady rate, right? It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a wheel with certain weights on it that, that, that turns around, around, around uh, at, a, at, a, a, at a frequency, at a, you know, at a rate that can be predicted and, and, and controlled. So, regulating the movement of uh, this escapement with a balance wheel was, was an, again, an, another thing that added even more accuracy to these new mechanical clocks. So how far we've come, right? Sundials used to measure rough hours, while water clocks, you know, would ring gongs with a little more accuracy. No, no, no. Now, mechanical clocks are doing a very good job of delineating seconds with their, uh, with their escapements and their, and their balance wheels. And one of the reasons behind the development of all these increasingly accurate clocks was the need for Catholic monks to be very punctual as they lived their lives uh, to strict schedules of, of work and prayer. And in fact, many leading clockmakers back in these times were the monks themselves who developed them uh, and then uh, developed and then used these clocks in their daily routines, the ones that were particularly well funded or, you know, particularly forward thinking when it came to the sciences. These were the these were the 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 sort of uh, the the highest quality clocks that were being made at the time. Now, don't think you know when you think of these clocks, you think about you know bald sort of fryer tuck blokes having a look at a cuckoo. Clock, nothing like that. These clocks didn't have faces. They didn't have hands in the same way that we would anticipate it now. They were more or less built to ring bells at certain times. They were more or less built. I mean, you could, I guess, look at it based on the way the weights were moving and figure out what sort of time it was. But it was much more about. Um, having a bell or a chime or a gong that would ring at a certain time, you know, whether it was at canonical hours or, or, or you know, whatever timing system you were using. And, and, and the development of these timepieces uh, because of, of these Catholic uh, monastic orders, right, meant that Europe became the epicentre of timekeeping technology. Many European towns had large clock towers that rang the hours. Again, most didn't have faces as reading a clock face was 
a pretty alien concept to most. But, but you know, having tower bells to mark the passage of time, it further delineated not just the days of the monks, but delineate, delineated the days of the common folk as well. Now, it's worth noting, of course, that these early mechanical clocks were wildly inaccurate by today's standards. They could lose as much as, you know, two hours a day. But this number grew smaller as the technology improved, um, and a lot of mechanical clocks go, you know, got down to daily inaccuracies of 15 minutes or so. There was also um, slowly but surely a broad um, standardization of the way that time was measured. They, you know, generally 12 hours in, or 24 hours in a day, 12-hour uh, periods on, on clocks. Pretty, it was pretty common, but there were different systems as to from which point the hour should be measured, whether it reset at midnight or midday, what the numbers were, that sort of stuff. Eventually, it was a system known as the French system that won out, and still the system that we use today, the 12 hours resets at midnight and at noon. But for a while there, there were all sorts of different, all sorts of different systems there. But I guess this whole thing goes to show uh, just how much punctuality meant in these times and how there was very little in the way of absolute timing. You know, th- this sort of means, it sort of goes to explain a lot of the old meet at dawn sort of thing because clocks couldn't necessarily be relied upon to, to one, be, you know, punctual in the first place or two, be consistent from town to town because every clock tower was basically more or less just a countdown timer rather than any kind of universal time. Anyway. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Eventually, as we move into the 15th century, clock faces began to be included in tower clocks, first with just hour hands uh, and then minute hands uh, as well. And, and this was perhaps the point at which the marking of time on this level really had begun to permeate into the consciousness of, of everyday people, as they now had common access to relatively accurate time measurements. There are some famous clocks from this period that survived to this day, the Wells Cathedral Clock that was built in England in 1390, and of course the very famous Prague Astronomical Clock that was built in 1462, one of the Czech Republic's most famous tourist attractions, and one of the most stunning examples of an astronomical clock. We talked about them a little bit earlier. Um, you know, a, a clock that doesn't just show the time, but also shows the the position of various heavenly bodies, stars, you know, planets, sun, moon, whatever else like that. However, all these mechanical clocks and their wondrous bleeding edge 15-minute inaccuracies, can you believe it's so accurate? All of these clocks, right, they had another problem. They had another problem associated with them. Most of them were absolutely bloody enormous. These weren't the sort of timepieces that you could take with you to make sure you got to places on time. They were the sort of device that, you know, took up an entire bloody room all to themselves, mate. So the next challenge for clockmakers was miniaturization, And for that, you needed a different power source because you couldn't string up a system of weights and pulleys and 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 think you know that on, on long cords that would wind down. It just it, you know these wound up weights they weren't going to work inside of a small clock. You know they weren't going to offer enough offer enough power. So it was during the 15th century 
that the spring-driven clock began to be developed. The oldest surviving one uh, that we have was owned by Philip the Good, the Duke of Burgundy in the 1430s. And spring-driven clocks, they used a wound-up spring that would slowly release the energy put into it uh, to power the escapement. Now, you know, you've probably seen clocks like these uh, from from years and years ago. If, if you've got an old clock that looks like it's uh, it's mechanical and doesn't have a pendulum in it, chances are it is powered with a spring. And I'm not talking about a sort of spring that you'd expect, you know, on a trampoline or in, in car suspension. I'm talking about a big spiral, a big long uh, spiral that sort of goes out like a pizza rather than up and down like a tube. And that would then be wound up with a key and slowly the spring would naturally, uh, you know, start to spread and, 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 the, and the power would be uh, would be then transferred into the escapement. And that would be that. That was what drove the, the movement of the clock there. Now, Without the need for huge casings and, you know, for, for massive balance wheels or weights, clocks began to become smaller and smaller as, technolo- as technological advancements allowed clockmakers uh, to, to power these devices, not, well, not only power these small devices, but also make these small devices as uh, uh, advancements in, in, in metal work and engineering allowed uh, tools to become smaller, gears to become smaller, all that sort of thing. And so many towns throughout Europe, particularly towns like Augsburg and Nuremberg, these were hotspots for engineering and metalwork. They also became uh, known for the quality of, of the clocks that were made there as well. Um, and in, in 1584, a Swiss fellow by the name of Jost Berg, who worked in Kassel and Prague, he invented a new type of escapement altogether, the crossbeat escapement, and this brought mechanical clocks to new levels of accuracy where they were losing about a minute a day. And it was in this period, as I said, already, already Europe is very much the, uh, the capital of clock, of clock making. But it was in this period that Switzerland also, in particular, began to uh, to. Uh, I mean, I say Switzerland. It, it, it was it was these regions around you know Switzerland, the German speaking world, but areas where a lot of, um, of of Huguenots, right, people who were being pushed out of Catholic France, uh, moved away. Skilled artisans, wealthy and and well educated people, moved into places like Switzerland, the German speaking nations, whatever else, set themselves up as skilled artisans. And so the history of uh, you know of, of Swiss cuckoo clocks and and all of those sorts of things, these highly highly complex and very well-developed machines. They go back centuries, and, and it's got a lot to do with that, the displacement of, of disenfranchised Protestants who, who went and plied their trade and made a lot of money in other places as well. We'll come back to Switzerland a little bit later on because, of, the, of, of course, the story of, of Swiss clockmaking uh, doesn't end there. But there is one other purpose that clocks were used for at this time that we haven't really touched upon too much, and we can't go too deep on this because it, it, it is a very, very, you know, it, it almost takes us into a different field. But these increasingly accurate clocks were of great use in the field of astronomy as they were critical to anyone looking to investigate the night sky. Famous astronomers such as Tycho Brahe put them to use while observing the positions of, of, the, of the stars above, taking advantage of, of technological breakthroughs like, and you know, this is not a joke, a second hand on a clock, being able to measure, you know, the movement of stars or, or, or planets or anything else like that to the second ended up, you know, giving, giving rise to huge breakthroughs in, in astronomical technologies there as well. But it was in 1656 that the next enormous development came to the world of timekeeping when the Dutch inventor Christian Huygens developed a functional pendulum clock inspired by the work of such people as Galileo. Now, using a pendulum to power an escapement was an, abs- an absolute game changer, an absolute game changer. And much like water clocks before them, pendulum clocks became the default way of keeping time 
for hundreds and hundreds of years after they were invented. Pendulum clocks were much, much more accurate than any any previous clock ever made, and their widespread adoption led to the development of the iconic grandfather clock, which, you know, was still being widely used just 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 a hundred years ago. So this this Haugen's bloke, he really no, he knocked it out of the park with this one. Pendulum clocks needed, of course, a uh, a long vertical casing to house the the pendulum that would uh, swing beneath them. Or if if they didn't have casing, they needed you know a fair bit of a fair bit of free room underneath so the pendulum could swing back and forth. Uh, but they nonetheless they nonetheless went on to become the the standard for accurate timekeeping until the twentieth century. Uh, they were big, they were bulky, but they were incredibly accurate and they were a great way for people to keep accurate time uh, over long distances as long as they kept it wound up. A, a grandfather clock, a pendulum clock would, would keep, you know, keep very, very good time for, for a long time. However, Halkins wasn't finished with the pendulum clock because in the 1670s, he invented the hairspring, more or less uh, exactly at the same time as as it, as it turns out, as another bloke, the English scientist Robert Hooke. Now, who got there first uh, it was a matter of fierce debate and, uh, and bitter rivalry uh, between these two. But uh, history seems to have sided with Hooke as having nudged out Haugen's uh, there, although uh, they both came to the same conclusion independently and, and, and within a very short time of each other, even if Hooke uh, got there, you know, ju- just, just before Haugen's there. Anyway, the hairspring, it was a critical new development as it allowed clocks to be miniaturized to an even greater degree, smaller than ever before, right? A hairspring could regulate the speed of a small balance wheel, which finally made the idea of a pocket watch feasible. We now have the technology, the, the, the metal working, the engineering, all that sort of stuff had come together to finally be able to miniaturize clocks properly. Now, look, the, the miniaturized pocket watches, they weren't a new concept. Queen Elizabeth I of England had had one, you know, over 100 years ago. But they were horrifically inaccurate. They, I mean, they would they could lose hours in a day, and therefore, you know, they they weren't much more than just a curio. They didn't they didn't keep good time at all. But the hairspring had the same effect on pocket watches as the pendulum did on larger ones. It revolutionised their accuracy, and it meant that small clocks that you could put in your pocket and rely upon to tell accurate time were now possible. Now that not may, may sound like much these days, of course, when you know I'm sure the room that you're in right now has four or five different ways for you to tell the time. But the fact of the matter is, before the pocket watch, if you weren't either near a clock tower or inside somewhere with a pendulum clock, you just didn't know what the time was. If you were traveling, if you were outside in the in you know somewhere that where there wasn't a, t- a clock tower in, in clear view, and this is why clock towers were built so high, so people would seem for a long, a long way off, you just didn't know what time it was. And in a world where this was becoming increasingly relevant, when you did need to know what time it was, pocket watches were a game changer. Now, interesting, I was, I was interested to learn this, right? The fashion with pocket watches was for men to, to carry them in their pockets. Now, that's not going to surprise you. Of course, we all understand that. It was, it was Prince Albert, uh, you know, centuries later, who uh, popularized the, the watch chain, of course, where you put your pocket watch in your, in your waistcoat pocket there like that, and you had the chain hanging out clipped somewhere else. And this was what men would do. They'd keep their, their, their watches in their pockets. Uh, whereas women would wear them as jewellery, as bracelets on their wrists or as, uh, as pendants around their necks. Now, this did change uh, late 19th, early 20th century for reasons that we'll, uh, we'll come to. But it meant, interestingly, back then at least, that men's watches worked a lot better than women's. Because early pocket watches, they were very vulnerable to damage from exposure. 
to things like rain or, you know, the elements in general. So it was much safer to keep them in a pocket rather than, you know, on your wrist or around your neck. So interestingly, you know, pocket watches owned by men kept in pockets would, would tend to last a lot longer. They wouldn't be, you know, have their mechanisms fouled up or, uh, or damaged by, uh, by exposure there. Anyway, as we now move into the 18th century, these small clocks in the form of pocket watches, they're available to anyone wealthy enough to buy them. So we've gone from Egyptian obelisks acting as, you know, public sundials to carrying around clocks accurate to the minute in your pocket. We have come a long way, but we've still got a very long way to go, of course. So I hope you'll join me next week as we cover the story of John Harrison and the marine chronometer, the origin of time zones, international time zones, wristwatches and their emergence along with electric clocks, and of course, quartz and atomic clocks to take us right through to the modern era. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is the first half of the history of clocks. I do hope you'll come back next week to hear about uh, hear the second half because there's a lot of good stuff to get across there. And, and you will learn maybe a thing or two, not just about clocks, but about latitude, longitude, navigation, all sorts of other things like that. Secret, secret naval history snuck into next week's episode. I can promise you that. Anyway, all the regular housekeeping stuff coming your way now, boring housekeeping stuff. Before you go and, you know, tune out, I do want to say once again, thank you to all the people who... Uh, Tune into last week's episode, the 100th episode, and uh, to the people who sent back some very, very nice feedback. Uh, it was very humbling to hear, you know, the, the way that uh, this podcast has, has, has impacted people or touched people's lives. And, um, it, I mean, it's it's astonishing. It's astonishing to have such a, a breadth and depth of support from so many wonderful people. So thank you very much to everyone who uh, who tuned in and, and especially the people who got back to me and, and, and you know, let me know how they uh, what they thought of it. I might do another episode, a little anthology episode like that again in the future. Well, it won't be for a while, I don't think, but I, I may do one if, if people enjoyed it. But uh, here, it's the opposite. It's a you know two-week-long belter about clocks, so I hope you enjoyed that. Anyway, all the normal boring housekeeping stuff coming your way, halfhousehistory.net. You can go there, find the contact form if you want to submit a, a topic. You can also find links, of course, to the shop. Uh, you can buy Half House History merch. T-shirts still on sale. Free shipping worldwide on all purchases made at the Half House History shop. T-shirts, notebooks, badges, nearly out of magnets. So get in quick if you want. They're going to be sold out soon. I may have to put a new order in if people keep, people keep ordering them. Um, and uh, what else? Uh, of course, you can support the show via Patreon. Plenty of people are doing that. And uh, you can too. For as little as $1 a month, you can have access to uh, all sorts of exclusive stuff. You can get behind the scenes uh the show notes, you can get uh, uncut episodes, you can get uh, early access to these apps as well. So I do hope you consider supporting the show um, via Patreon. And thank you to all the people who continue to do so. And a special thank you to all the new patrons who have signed up recently and the people who have just adjusted their pledges. Uh, it's uh, it, it, it's so it's so wonderful to have uh, this, <laughs> such a robust and uh, unforgiving reason to make sure this show comes out every week. So thank you so much to all the patron supporters there. And finally, a thank you to just you for listening. If whether you're a patron supporter or not, I really do value your time and the fact that you come and, sh- and you know spend half an hour, forty minutes of it every week with me here is just so. It's such a privilege, and and so thank you very much for your uh, your continued patronage here. And do tell your friends, tell your friends about this dumb podcast so we can uh, continue to get. Got to get those numbers up. Rookie numbers in this racket. Got to get those numbers up. Anyway, that is that for this week. I'll see you back in next week as we conclude the history of clocks. And uh, I've got a question here from Reddit, posed on Reddit, of course. We've been talking about clocks all day. And so uh, this is a very appropriate question to close out the show with, posed by Reddit scientist KrazyKZG, who asks, 
Most clocks have two hands, but sometimes they have three hands. When they do, they call the third hand the second hand. Why is this?